0: Good morning, and uh, welcome back. We're glad to have everybody back with us. Uh, We have missed you. I know some of you were here last week, but most of you were not yet. So uh, we're glad to see you guys back again. I do want to remind you as well, uh, or let you know for the first time if you're new, uh, if you are a person that maybe isn't as much of a morning person, or you have trouble getting here at 11 o'clock and parking and everything, I did want to just let you know, we also have our 6 p.m college service, which is exactly like this one, same message, same music, but just a little bit more laid back, and it is in the evening, obviously. So we'd love to have you check that out as well. If you ever come into town later in the afternoon as well and can't make it in the morning, we'd love to have you look into that. All right, uh, if you have your Bible, open up to the book of Philippians. We are going through Philippians this semester, and uh, this morning we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. So Philippians 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Would you pray with me? Father, it's a privilege for us to be here this morning and to sing your praises. As we sang this morning, Lord, I just was struck by the joy it is to know you, to praise you, and to know your word. Thank you for the power contained in it. I thank you that because of the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, we know that the Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us, is present here this morning. And so, God, we pray that we would listen to your voice through your Spirit as we study and as we hear from your word. I pray remove all of our distractions, remove our doubts, and our rebellion. Lord, move in our minds that we might understand what you have to say. Father, move in our hearts that we would believe and then empower our hands and our feet to do your will. We love you and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I had a friend in college. His name was Richard. And uh, Richard was a big guy, uh, well over six feet, six one, six two. 6'2". I know some of you are that tall, but it wasn't just that he was tall. Uh, he was also big, built like a linebacker, uh, not like big soft, but uh, big and solid. And uh, we used to enjoy uh, hanging out with this guy and, and people would try to wrestle him down and it was rare that you could actually get him down on the ground, but it was a huge victory when you did uh, because he couldn't really get up very easily uh, because he was so big. Um, great guy. He moved up to Dallas after we graduated, uh, got involved with his church up there, and got involved in the singles group. And one day he was talking to another a person in the singles group, a young lady, and she was, she was only maybe about five foot one, five foot two, uh, much smaller than him. And she was telling him how she had been taking a self defense class in her spare time and uh, learning how to defend herself should she be attacked in a parking garage or something along those lines. And Richard said, You know, that's nice and all, Kristen, but uh, if somebody my size comes up to you uh, to attack you in at a parking garage, I don't care how many moves you know, uh, I will be able to overpower you. And she said, Want to bet? And he said, all right. And she goes, okay, I'm going to stand here. She goes, you come up at me from behind. And she said, you try any way you can to restrain me. She said, don't, don't be afraid. You can attack me if you want, just as if you were a mugger in a parking garage. So Richard goes, all right, this will be fun. So uh, he backs up and he comes at her and he tries to grab her around the neck. And uh, she grabs his arm and flips him over her head and lands him flat on his back. A, a humbling moment for Richard Uh, Another friend of ours, a guy named Frank, saw this whole thing go down and he thought, that's awesome, I'm going to ask her out. And so uh, (laughs) he did, actually. After that, asked her out, ended up marrying her and he was impressed, (laughs) impressed by the fact that uh, although she was small, she was powerful, right? Sometimes power comes in small packages. Uh, Sometimes the things that we think are going to be big and important and significant aren't, and sometimes the things we think are going to be small and insignificant are actually very powerful. And uh, as we look at the New Testament and as we look at the coming of Jesus Christ, we see that the gospel is actually one of those things that from a worldly standpoint, it seems small. Really, it's the story of a first century Jewish carpenter who dies as a criminal, on a cross. What could be more difficult to believe that that's going to be something huge and important and powerful? And yet it is. And the reason is because, as we know, that man on that cross didn't stay there. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose again. He defeated death And so although the gospel in worldly terms seems like a small insignificant thing, it is the most powerful message on the face of the earth. It's transformed lives, it's transformed cultures and the course of history because it includes the message that God is active in the world and God has overcome death and sin and he invites us now to know him and to be a part of what he's doing in the world. So although it seems small and insignificant, it's unbelievably powerful. More powerful than any politician, more powerful than any media mogul, more powerful than anything you could devote your life to. And as we've looked last week and then now this week at the book of Philippians, the thing that we see is that Paul wrote this letter for a couple of reasons. One was simply to thank this group of people for their partnership in the gospel, that they had recognized the importance and significance of it, and they gave him money to continue his ministry. But he also writes it to encourage and challenge these men and women that he loves to stand firm in the truth of the gospel and not to deviate from it, despite the fact that there were external pressures. And internal pressures, there were people coming in from outside the Philippian church, preaching false gospels, that you could earn your way to heaven through works of the law. And there was also conflict within, people fighting amongst themselves. And Paul writes this letter to say, I exhort you and I encourage you and I plead with you to stand firm in the gospel and partner in that. And what we see in this short passage that we're looking at this morning is that Paul writes this, he begins this letter by expressing to them how much he loves them because they have partnered with him in the most significant task in the whole world to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And he encourages them that if you will do that, if you will devote your life to that, you will experience the power of God in your life, in your relationships, in your world, in a way that you won't experience it any other way. And My guess is for you guys, and this was true of me, you came to college and uh, you're getting a degree on some level because you want to live a significant life. You want to live a life that makes an impact. You want to be a person who does things well, who does what is right. You're probably here also because you want to learn and you want to be wise and you have dreams for your future and what you will do with your future and how you will spend it. And as we look at the word of God, the thing that we see is no matter what your career is, no matter what your degree is, the most valuable thing that you can pour your life into is knowing Jesus Christ and investing in the gospel with your time, with your money, with your emotions and your energy, in your career, in your family, in everything you do. If you want to have a powerful, significant life in God's economy, it doesn't come from voting for the right guy in the primary. It doesn't come from being the next Bill Gates, although that may be what God calls you to. But where real significance comes from is investing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul talks about in this passage as he expresses to these people how much he loves them and wants to partner with them. And we're going to see what does the gospel lead to in our lives that makes it so powerful as we walk through this passage. So let's start again in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now skip down to verse 7. We'll come back to verse 6 in a moment. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The gospel leads, first of all, to true unity. Participation in the gospel leads to true unity. Paul writes this letter to these people and you can see in his tone and in his words, he says, I always remember you. I always pray for you. Every time I pray, I remember you and I thank God and I'm joyful. And he says, I yearn for you. I want to see you again because I hold you here in my heart. He says, I have this deep affection for you. This word in Greek that he uses for affection is actually the word from which we get the word spleen. It's a It's a cool word, huh? And the idea is this, that deep down in the innermost parts of my being, I love you. And because they have given their money and their energy and their time to defending the gospel and promoting it, Paul says, I love you. True unity comes when we partner together for a task to make disciples of all nations. Think about the ways in which we believe that we can be unified with others. What really causes us to be unified with other people? Maybe, maybe you think, uh, well, if you're in the same family, right, your brothers or sisters or uh, your parents, that's what causes unity. Maybe that's not always the case, is it? I can remember years ago when I was in junior high, I went on a camping trip with my church. And uh, on this trip, they put uh, about four of us in a tent together because we were small, I guess, and they figured we could all sleep in there. And I was in a tent with a friend of mine, and then these two other guys, whose names I can't remember, we'll just call them John and Mark, they were brothers, and they had come on this trip together. And my guess is that their parents shipped them off to get them away from the house, because these guys, although they were brothers, they hated each other. And the whole trip, they did nothing but argue. And so uh, me and my friend would lie in this tent at night and hear these guys just yelling at each other. And uh, one evening in particular, it escalated to the point of physical violence in this little tent. And so you can imagine you're already like this and these guys start to punch each other, right? And we're sitting there going, oh no, you know, like, and they're both big and we're thinking this whole thing's gonna fall over, you know, I mean, it's not that stable to begin with. So we kind of inch our way out and sure enough, they just begin to punch and roll and fight and this whole tent's kind of rolling around, right? This was their fun camping trip. Brothers. And some of you may have that kind of relationship with your brothers and sisters. It, it may not be one of unity. Family doesn't always create the kinds of deep bonds that we want, does it? What about being an Aggie, right? Maybe if you're an Aggie, you like all the other Aggies, you love them. Hey, I've been an Aggie for a long time. I love it. But I've seen how people can treat each other when the football team loses, You know what I'm talking about. Does being an Aggie always lead to the kind of unity that we would like? As much as we want to say it does, the reality is often different. We see biblically what leads to the deepest, most unified relationships that you'll ever have is actually partnering in the gospel. And I'm not talking about just sitting here in church together. You may be sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I don't really know these people. I don't feel unified with them at all. What I'm talking about is partnering together to invest your time, your energy, your money, your resources in sharing Jesus with the world. Go talk to some of our students who have been on summer projects overseas where they've had an opportunity for six weeks to invest themselves in sharing Jesus with those from another culture. And I guarantee you, to a man, they will tell you that those are some of the deepest, closest relationships they've ever made. The closest relationships I've ever made are with those men and women That I've partnered together with to share Jesus Christ. Paul says, you want to know what it feels like to have true unity. It's not like the world says where we just say, I'm going to ignore all of my disagreements and differences and just hold hands and say, let's be unified, right? That's not it. I may disagree with you profoundly on certain issues, but when I partner together to spread the gospel, I set those aside because my desires are less important than the task Jesus has called us to. And I'm telling you, I've never experienced love and fellowship sweeter than when I was partnering in that task. And Paul has this deep affection for these people because of what they've done with him for the sake of the gospel, to proclaim that Jesus died and rose again, to provide life. So the gospel leads to true unity. All right, let's look back now at verse 6. In the middle of all this, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All right, famous verse. And what Paul is saying is this, that the gospel not only leads to unity, it also leads to true impact. True impact. All right, many times this verse is quoted to say, uh, You know, you're in process. God's going to make you better, and He's working on your life. And that may be part of what this verse is saying, but really what Paul is saying in this context is this You, Philippian believers, have partnered with me to spread the gospel. And that is evidence that God is at work in your life, and He's going to continue to work both in you and through you to spread the name of Jesus Christ all around the world until the day He comes back. The work He started in your life will bear an impact that lasts long after you die. Because God always finishes what he starts. I don't always finish what I start. I don't know if you do. There are times that I begin a project and I'm incapable of finishing. There are times that I simply leave the project behind. At my house uh, in the past, I've started plumbing projects, replaced faucets or replaced a valve. And I have well intentions Good intentions to finish, but I don't, because I can't, because I hit a snag. I remember several years ago, I decided to change a valve on our hot water heater, uh, gas-powered hot water heater, and uh, pulled off the old valve, put the new one on, and uh, turned the thing back on, and it was heating the water, but there was a distinct aroma of natural gas in my house, and at first I sat there, I thought, probably just a little leak, Right? Turned it off, turned it back on again, natural gas, and finally decided I better call somebody before somebody decides to light a candle in the house or something like that. And so I got on the phone, called a plumber, explained it to him. I'm sorry, I can't finish it. You're going to have to fix my mess. Uh, So what I needed was a partner, right? Meaning somebody to do my job for me. Uh, He came in, he fixed it. And then uh, one of the most surreal experiences in my adult life was standing on my driveway while the plumber lectured me, and he walked up to me and uh, he he said, uh, you know, I don't mind homeowners doing some work around the house, but when it comes to gas appliances, you'd better call a professional. And I sat there and I thought, I am, I'm being chastised by the plumber, right? <laughs> I just paid you to do this job. And I wanted to go, you know, it's it's kind of the same way with the Bible, right? I don't mind you reading it. Uh, but uh, if there's a really tough passage, you call me, all right? Here's my card, okay? But I didn't, because I don't think that would have been as impressive as I thought in my head, you know? (laughs) Okay, what's my point? I was incapable of finishing the job. I could not do it. I needed somebody to do it for me. And Paul says, what God began in your life, God will finish. And the reason is because if you are going to have an impact in this world, it's going to be through the power of God that resides in you and in your church as you partner in the gospel. And the great thing is, when you and I invest our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God gets on board with us. And that's why Romans 8 tells us that the very Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now will give life to your mortal body as you follow him. If you want to know what it's like to make a difference in the world, then you invest in the gospel. And God will work through you to start something that will last into eternity. Almost everything else that you invest in in this world, it's going to die when you go into the ground. The only thing that will last forever is the work that you do for God's people and God's world on behalf of the gospel. That's what's going to last. So the gospel leads to true impact. Right, thirdly, look at verses nine and 10. It says, "It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent." All right, we'll pause there for a second. The gospel leads, true unity, true impact. Thirdly, true wisdom, true wisdom. Paul prays for them and he says, here's what I want, that God will produce in your life an intimate love for him. And out of that love will spring a deep knowledge. This word in Greek, it's epigenosis. It doesn't just mean, yeah, I know about God. I've heard about him. What it means is I know him on a personal level. And I understand the things that he wants from my life. And so it leads, when we love the gospel and we love partnering with the gospel, that love for God abounds and we get to know him better and better and we know what he wants from us. And it leads also, he says, to discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. In other words, I understand the things that are good, the things that are bad, the things that God wants from my life and doesn't. Do you have a hard time sometimes making decisions? Do you have a hard time discerning, uh, what should I do with the skills and the gifts that God has given me? What should my major be? How should I spend my time? What should I do after I graduate? All of us have a hard time making those decisions, and the reality is you're not going to open the Bible and find a verse that tells you. But what I love about this is it says as you get to know God deeper and deeper, you'll understand more and more who you are because you were created by Him. And you'll understand more and more what He wants from your life, and you'll understand how to approve those things that are excellent. And ways you used to spend your time, you won't want to spend your time that way anymore. Things you used to invest in will seem less significant to you. The more we get to know somebody and love them, the more we understand what they want. I'll never forget five or six years ago, my parents had been married for probably 35 years. And my wife and I and our kids went to visit them at Christmas. And my mom asked all of us, what would you like for Christmas dinner? Do you want ham or do you want turkey? And uh, we all kind of voted. And I think the consensus that year came up turkey. And she said, oh, okay, I'll make a turkey. And my dad, out of the blue, goes, that's great because I really have never liked ham. And my mom looks over at him and she goes, we've been eating ham for Christmas for 35 years. You don't like ham? No. And you never mentioned this before? right? And of course, we're sitting there in the middle of this going, awkward, right? Kind of a weird, (laughs) weird moment. And what we realized was even after 35 years, they're still learning new things about each other. But what happened? Well, uh, she learned to make ham less often, right? Because she loves him. She wants to do those things that make him happy. It's the same in our relationship with God. And your relationship with God dramatically affects what you do toward other people, how you speak to them, how you treat them, how you spend your time, how you treat yourself. And my guess is that there are some of you in here right now that you just feel kind of constantly confused about what you ought to do and how you ought to act. And the reason may be because you are not regularly coming into contact with the word of God. You are not regularly spending time with him in prayer and taking advantage of the power of the spirit that lives within you if you know him. And it may be that the things you're trying to invest your life in aren't those things that God is moving and directing and blessing. And so you're confused and you feel out of of focus. And the reality is the more I love God and the things of God and I begin to give my time, for example, to the things of the word of God, the things of the gospel. I'm willing to give my time to read, to pray, to spend a few weeks overseas, to share the gospel and have a conversation with someone who doesn't know him. I'm willing to invest my time in that, or I'm willing to invest my money, even though I think I don't have any money. I'm willing to use what little I may have to invest in the gospel. And the more that I do those things, the more I see God allowing me to approve the things that are excellent more and more and more, and I begin to understand his will. So, you really want to have wisdom. Again, it's not found uh, by watching Dr. Phil. That may be a shock to you. It's not found by listening to Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, although they may have some degree of wisdom to offer. True wisdom is found in listening to God in His Word and prioritizing the things that He wants us to prioritize. then fourthly, the gospel leads to true righteousness. Look at the second part of verse 10 and going into verse 11. I'll start at the beginning of verse 10 again. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, once I understand what God wants, once I have discernment and wisdom, then I'll know and be able to do what is right. And that comes through the power of the Spirit. Doing what is right is tough, right? If you just We talked about this last week. You just sit and you think about avoiding what is wrong. I don't want to uh, look at those images. I don't want to talk to my roommate that way. I don't want to be selfish. Stop, 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 stop doing that, right? It's almost impossible to muster up the ability to do that. Uh, I have a son right now. He just turned two years old last week, and I came out of my room this morning as I was getting dressed because I heard some screaming and hollering as happens quite a bit uh, in my home. And I came out and as I walked out into the room, I saw my four-year-old daughter was holding on to the shoulders of her brand new American Girl doll. Now, some of you girls know what those are, right? She just got it. And my son was holding on to one of her legs and they were having a tug of war over Ruthie the dolly, right? And my daughter is just screaming because although she is older, uh, my son is already stronger. And so uh, they're pulling back and forth and she's just going, you know, and he's like, you know, and he's loving it (laughs) and pulling on this thing. And I said, you know, stop. And my wife came in and she goes, I just told him to stop that. Five minutes later, I go out, I'm making breakfast for them. I put part of the breakfast on the table. He runs in, he climbs up on his chair, and he starts to eat. And I said, No, son, the, the meal isn't ready yet. Everybody's not here. We haven't prayed. You cannot eat. And he looks at me and he sets his spoon down. I walk back into the other room, and then the girls come in and go, Samuel's eating again. All right, I walk in, he's he's eating again. All right? Now, what's the problem? Is he evil? No. All right. What's the problem? He lacks self control. And actually, I, re- I really read an article about this because I'm trying to figure out what is going on. You know? So I read an article. Apparently, toddlers, there's a part of their brain, the prefrontal cortex, that controls impulse control, right? Allows you to exercise some self-control. Uh, theirs is very poorly developed. And so if you put a cookie in front of a toddler, they, they will eat it. They can't not, all right? <laughs> now, you laugh at that. But the reality is that many of us are about the same, right? Your problem might be different and you may have a little bit of a semblance of self-control. And uh, for you, it may be cookies. For you, it may be sex. For you, it may be alcohol and drugs. For you, it may be your temper and your need to get even. It may be your greed. And whatever it is, there's that thing that you say, I just can't seem to get it under control. I can't control myself. And sometimes it seems like the harder you try, the worse it gets. And what Paul says is this, that his prayer for them is that as they know God deeper and they invest their lives in the things of the gospel, they'll understand what is true and then the Spirit will empower them to do what is right. see, the secret to doing what is right and true righteousness is not stealing your will and trying harder and harder. The secret is falling into Jesus and seeking to know him and his word and his spirit and relying on his power. And it's a a task of discipline, yes, but it also means I, I totally rely upon you to give me the righteousness that I lack. And that's a huge theme in the book of Philippians. Paul says you want to understand God and know his will Then do this know his word, love his people, share the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And make a decision that I will commit my life to those things. And yeah, it'll be tough. And yes, there will be failures. And yes, there will be difficulties and trials. But the power that God can unleash in our lives when we invest in the things of his kingdom, I guarantee you it is greater than any significance, any unity, any righteousness, wisdom, impact that you will see in anything else. Uh, Right now, of course, all of the news is about the political election. And I don't encourage you to be cynical about the ways God might be able to use governments. I think we have a responsibility to vote and to care and all of those things. But the reality is this, that the hope of the gospel is not found ultimately in which candidate is on the ballot. The hope of the gospel is that we have a Savior who rose from the dead, defeated death and sin, and guess what? One day He will establish His kingdom. And He calls us to be a part of it. And so that's where life is found, that's where power is found. Uh, For some of you, you, you've paid no attention to the election, but you're caught up in your world. I want to have the right stuff, the right job, the right grades, be in the right place to fulfill my ambitions. And I don't know what career God may call you to, but whatever it is, your primary purpose in life is to invest in those things that matter to him. His word, his people. And your career or your family becomes an opportunity, an avenue for you to do that. In worldly terms, the gospel is not something that is significant or powerful. It really isn't. It seems something despicable, like Paul says. It seems something totally insignificant. But in the economy of God, if you will invest your life in him, he will unleash his work and his power in your life in in ways that I, I think you can't even now imagine. Despite trials and pains and difficulties, you'll know him, know what he wants, and have the ability and opportunity to fulfill his purposes on earth. And in that, what we all want ultimately is to be right in the center of God's will and know that we're making an impact. As Paul was writing this letter, you got to remember, he's sitting in a jail cell. So Paul certainly isn't saying, uh, follow Jesus and you'll be wealthy. You'll be well-liked. He's sitting in prison. Instead, he's saying, follow Jesus, and God will work in your life to give you impact that will reverberate until eternity. That's our prayer as a college ministry for you guys this semester, this year, as you go through college. That's our hope for us and for you, and that's what we're about. So, Why don't we spend a moment, just just close your eyes for just a moment, spend a moment, just let it be silent. And just reflect for a moment, uh, what are the priorities of your life? And are you willing to trust God with your time, your energy, resources, so that he will work through you to do his will? And how can you practically do that? God, there are so many things that we want our lives to be. We look at this list on the board unity and impact and wisdom and righteousness. We want to possess those things. We want to live those things. And yet we fail because we try to pursue our own agenda instead of yours. We try to pursue our own righteousness instead of yours. Father, we pray that you would forgive us. Some in this room are at a point of needing to make critical decisions about their priorities and their future. There may be some in this room who don't know that they can have eternal life by believing in what you have done through Jesus Christ, that Jesus took our sin, rose again so we can have life, if there are any that have not exercised faith in him for eternal life, I pray they would. For those of us who have, Father, I pray now that we would reevaluate the ways that we spend our energy, our time, our money, the things we do and say, how we spend our summer breaks, our spring breaks, how we approach our classes and our career and ask, are those things, are we doing those things in light of your very real, very imminent kingdom? And will the things we're investing our lives in last for eternity? I pray, give us grace to have an impact that will last for eternity. God, we love you. I pray, be with us this week as we seek to do your will. Empower us through your spirit. And We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.